in the middle of your Old Testament, there's that big book of Psalms, biggest book in the Bible, 150 chapters. Psalms is one of five poetic books that are all collected in that area of your Old Testament. They begin with Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs, books of poetry. Following the poetic books are five major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. We're going to be in Lamentations chapter 3 in just a minute. I decided a couple of months ago that I was going to do something different for Christmas this year. I've done a lot of Christmas series over the years. This year I wanted it to be different. I know you know the story. You know about the baby being born in a manger. You know about the star that was very peculiar in the nighttime sky and it led the wise men to find their king. You know about the shepherds and the angels announcing the birth of Jesus to the lowliest of the low. But what you may not realize is that when that baby was born, historically speaking, in that little town of Bethlehem, they called him Emmanuel because that's exactly who he was, God with us. In that baby, though that baby looked as unremarkable, as common as any other child born in that area in that day, was God in the flesh. And in that baby are all of the attributes, all of the characteristics of the Trinity. Attributes and characteristics that are as relevant for us today as they ever were, even from the beginning. Now, we call the birth of Jesus the incarnation. The incarnation means God in the flesh or deity in the flesh. You see, the incarnation is what separates Jesus from a thousand other religious gurus and prophets that have come down the pike. You see, Muhammad did not claim to be Allah. Muhammad claimed to be his representative, his prophet. Jesus actually claimed to be the creator, God in the flesh. And in the person of Jesus, the fullness of the Trinity is demonstrated. Again, all of the attributes of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Spirit, can be seen in this baby that's born in Bethlehem. So in the weeks leading up to Christmas, I decided to talk about some of these attributes. In week one, we addressed God's sovereignty. Christmas demonstrates the sovereignty of God, the fact that God is in charge. God is in complete and total control. Don't ever doubt that. In fact, let it liberate you. Allow it to free you. Release the worry, the anxiety, because God has a plan and he is in control. Last time we talked about mercy. In Christ, God's mercy is personified. When a baby was born 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, that baby was the embodiment of God's mercy. That's why Jesus was so merciful with people he came in contact with. The word mercy, if you remember, is a Hebrew word, hesed, H-E-S-E-D. It means unfailing love. It means loving kindness. It means tender compassion. The fact is, God understands us. He gets us. That's what makes him merciful. God doesn't pity you. He doesn't pity me. He understands our plight. He understands our struggle. Today, we're going to examine God's faithfulness. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he becomes the embodiment of God's faithfulness. Christmas demonstrates God's faithfulness. 
You see, in the very beginning of your Bible, all the way back to the first couple of chapters in the book of Genesis, at the very beginning of our disobedience, when we decided to go our own way as opposed to God, at that moment in time, God promised to make a way. He promised to make a way to get us back. And Jesus is that way. The birth of Jesus demonstrates God's faithfulness. See, from the very beginning, if I were to take you back to Genesis chapter 3, when man first turned away from God, man had a better idea. God gave us one rule, one rule, and we couldn't keep that. And before you get too hard on Adam for ruining it for the rest of us, you know, I hate to shave. Is there any men in the audience that can relate to that? I hate to shave. That's why there are so many beards at Grace Community Church. Men don't like shaving. And every time I stand at the mirror and I start pulling that razor across my face, I get mad at Adam because Adam ruined it for all of us. I wouldn't have to do this to my face if Adam hadn't been disobedient. It's all his fault. Or when I'm working in my yard and I'm working so hard over the weekend and I make something beautiful and nice and attractive and Amy says, oh, Michael, that's so great. If I don't care for it meticulously, three months it's gone like it never existed. It's overgrown. It's pointless. I should have never done it in the first place. I blame Adam. Adam brought that curse on us, but according to Paul in the book of Romans, I would have done the same thing. You would have done the same thing. When given the choice, it is in the nature of mankind to go his own way as opposed to God's. When that happened, at the very beginning of time, God made a promise. In fact, it's the first bit of prophecy in your Bible. And it comes from Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, as you recall, God is pronouncing the curse on the universe. He has cursed the serpent. It will slither on its belly until the end of time. He then turns and curses the serpent's power, the power of the enemy. In Genesis 3 verse 15, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, you and Eve, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. There's a lot of theology in that verse. That verse reveals the struggle and the conflict in humanity. God decided when man disobeyed that the seed of woman would be in constant conflict with the offspring of the enemy. The demons and the dark spiritual forces that are at work in this world, that's where we fight. That's where we struggle according to Ephesians chapter 6 and the Apostle Paul. But her offspring, pointing to Jesus Christ, would one day rise up and crush the head of the enemy, even while the enemy got in one light blow and bruised his heel. When Jesus hung on the cross and he bore our sin in his own body, he shed his blood to cover our failure, moral and otherwise. The enemy, that was his last desperate blow. And he struck it on his heel. He bruised his heel. But on the third day when Jesus rose from the grave, that's when Jesus, the seed of woman, crushed his head. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians. Grave, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Because death is no longer an eternity without God. Death is merely a transition through Christ that is with God. You see, when mankind walked away from God, In the first of many examples of our own fickle loyalty, 
and our own unfaithfulness, God promised to make a way. God promised to get us back. And he'll never stop making a way for us to return to him. He'll never move. He'll never turn his back on us. He will make a way. And Jesus, Christmas, the birth of a baby in Bethlehem is that way. Jesus, I don't know if you've ever considered it, is the only baby ever born in the history of mankind who was born to die. Born for one purpose and one purpose only, to give his life a ransom for many. The enemy would bruise the heel of Jesus when Jesus hung on the cross. But Jesus, his death, his atoning death, his subsequent resurrection would crush the head of the enemy. Now, when we talk about faithfulness, theologically speaking, here's a good working definition. God is steadfast in his affection and loyalty. That's what faithfulness means. God cannot be moved. He does not change. He is steadfast in his affection and loyalty. Therefore, he can be trusted. Now, I'd like you to consider for a moment yourself in contrast. I'd like you to consider for a moment how many times you have promised yourself or someone close to you that you'll never do that again, only to do it again. Or, I'm going to make a change. I'm going to do something, but you never get around to doing it. Unfortunately, that number is embarrassingly large for me. I have made many promises to God, myself, my wife. Not going to be that way anymore, only to walk that same path. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 7. The apostle now, this is not coming from Pastor Mike. This is coming from the apostle Paul. Here's my problem, Paul says. The very thing I know I should be doing, I can't seem to do it. And the very thing I know I should avoid, that's all I want to do. You see, in contrast to God's faithfulness, we really have none. In contrast to God's immovability, if that's a word, his steadfast loyalty and affection, we really have very little. I can be moved so easily today regarding something I decided two days ago. On Monday, I'm gung-ho and it's off to the races. By Wednesday, I'm fluctuating a little bit. I'm struggling. By Saturday, I've come up with something completely different, a totally new goal. God is not like that because God is faithful. He is the opposite of that. That's why he's worthy of our praise. And Christmas is a demonstration of that faithfulness. Now, this is the time of year where many of you are considering that bathroom scale. Am I right? You're thinking about a New Year's resolution to shed a few unwanted pounds, right? You want to get up in the morning and step on that scale and see a much lower number, right? And so you've come up with a diet. You're going to eat right. You're going to exercise. You're going to do things differently in 2023. You've tried before, but this time you're going to succeed. And again, you start out gung-ho on Monday. Tuesday, you're rocking. Wednesday, your knees are getting a little shaky. Thursday, you're about to give up. By Saturday, it's all flown completely out the window if you're like me. It's called the Battle of the Bulge, and unfortunately, most of the time, the bulge wins, right? Let me uh, share something with you. I came across it this week in my study. It's called the stress diet. This is how it looks for many of us. 
On the stress diet for breakfast, you have one half grapefruit, one piece of toast, a cup of coffee, black, no sugar. You're well on your way to losing weight. By lunchtime, you have four ounces of chicken breast. The skin has been removed, steamed zucchini, unsweetened tea, and one Oreo cookie. God bless that one Oreo cookie. And it's so good at lunch, you decide that for your snack, and by the way, you've been good Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, it's now Thursday, and you're beginning to shake. So your snack on Thursday is the rest of the bag of the Oreos, one quart of Rocky Road ice cream, and a half a jar of hot fudge. Once the diet goes completely out the window, for dinner that night, we're having two loaves of garlic bread, one large pepperoni pizza with extra cheese, and one large milkshake. And before we turn in, our bedtime snack, three Milky Way candy bars, and an entire cheesecake. Oh, the impact of one Oreo cookie. We started out strong, but we finished weak, right? As you read through the pages of the Old Testament, one wonders when Israel came across that very first Oreo cookie, that very first action of compromise. Maybe it was a Canaanite idol that someone found after they conquered one of the Canaanite cities. God moved mightily among his people. The Israeli army was powerful in the Old Testament days because God went before them. And in the rubble of a city like Jericho, maybe someone came across a Canaanite idol. Now, they weren't going to take it home and put it in a place of prominence in their house. They certainly weren't going to worship it or bow down to it. But hey, it might be worth some money. So they took it home with them, and they put it in a closet. One of their kids found it and played with it outside in the yard. That sparked a little curiosity in your mind. So you went to Wikipedia, and you looked up the history of this Canaanite idol. And before you know it, one compromise has led to another compromise, to another compromise, and so on. Hosea chapter 8 and verse 4, with their silver and gold, they've made idols for themselves. Now, they didn't do that on the first day of their diet. No. It followed many, many compromises after another. Time and time again, what began as just a little harmless curiosity turned into a wholesale embrace of foreign idols and apostasy. The Old Testament is the story of Israel's unfaithfulness in contrast to the faithfulness of God. For God is faithful. That is the pattern of the Old Testament. Israel continually struggled with that very first Oreo cookie. One led to another. And before long, they found themselves in the cookie baking business. And it was harmful to them. The same is true for us. No one wakes up in the morning and when their feet hit the floor, they say to themselves, today I'm going to commit adultery. It doesn't work like that. It's one small compromise followed by another. It's a little playful banter back and forth on social media with someone who's not our wife, not our husband. <laughs> it's going out of our way in the office to make sure we walk by their office. It's going to eat at a totally different restaurant in town because that's where they eat their lunch on Fridays. Solomon wrote in Song of Songs chapter 2 and verse 15, it's the little foxes that spoil the vineyard. You don't have to worry about the hurricanes. Those come around few and far between. What you got to worry about are those pesky little foxes that slip in under the cover of darkness and ruin the entire vineyard. You see, on a very basic level, a very elementary level, that is the story of the Old Testament. Israel is unfaithful, and yet God cannot be moved. 
The two are contrasted again and again over and over throughout the 39 books of Genesis to Malachi. And Israel paid for her idolatrous unfaithfulness by way of captivity or exile. There are two in your Old Testament. 722 is the Assyrian captivity of the northern kingdom of Israel. They lost their sovereignty as a nation. They're now under the control of a foreign power. And in 536, there's the Babylonian captivity for the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, enter Jeremiah. Jeremiah knew captivity. Jeremiah spent four decades examining the reality of God's judgment on Israel for their unfaithfulness. He's known as the weeping prophet. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. Now, hang on. Before you judge this man's manhood, because he cried a lot, let me remind you that tears are good, according to the Bible. It's Psalm 56 and verse 8. God says, he remembers our sorrows. He preserves our tears. That's because God is merciful and God is faithful. Jeremiah was a prophet in the 7th century B.C. He was a contemporary of Daniel. You've heard of Daniel in the lion's den. These two were contemporaries. He wrote two books in your Old Testament. Jeremiah is one, and Lamentations is the other. According to Hosea chapter 8 and verse 7, God's people had sown to the wind, but they were now reaping a whirlwind, and that's so often the way it feels to us. We feel as if our infraction is slightly over the line, but the consequences are just overwhelming. That was due to their repetitive idolatry. And Jeremiah watched it all happen. For 40 years, Jeremiah would wake up in the morning and walk through the rubble that was his capital city, kicking away the debris as he walked down Main Street, remembering better times, the glory of Israel's history now reduced to rubble in the street. And he wrote it all down. He wrote down what he saw. He wrote down what he experienced. He wrote down how he felt about it in his own personal journal, and we call that journal Lamentations. A lament is a cry with words of grief. If you lament over something, you cry out with words of grief. I don't know if you've ever been in the hospital, like sitting with a loved one or in a nursing home with someone you care about, and at two in the morning, you're you're, you're awakened by just these horrible cries for help down the hall. Those are laments. They're crying out with words of grief. It's a wailing cry in the middle of the night. It is a rambling distress call when your life is skidded sideways. It is a grievous outpouring when you just can't see anything bright on your horizon. Nothing good is coming your way. Jeremiah knew lamentation. Jeremiah walked through again the rubble of his beloved capital city and he, re- he lamented Israel's un faithfulness. And as I said, he wrote everything down. Let's read some of it. Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 1. Jeremiah wrote, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. Now what makes this exponentially worse is Jeremiah knows that Israel brought this on themselves. Israel's own deliberate and conscious departure from God's plan has landed them in captivity. 
It's one thing to be miserable because of circumstances. It's another to be miserable knowing you brought those circumstances on yourself. Look at verse 8. Even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has barred my way. He's blocked my path with blocks of stone. He's made my paths crooked. Verse 10. Like a bear lying in wait. Like a lion in hiding, he dragged me from the path and he mangled me and he left me without help. Jeremiah and the people, they feel abandoned by God. They're hopeless, they're helpless, but what's terrible is it's about to get worse. Jeremiah feels like our king, our father, has become our tormentor. Watch, it gets worse. Verse 12, he drew his bow and he made me the target of his arrows. He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became the laughingstock of all my people. They mock me in song all day long. If we were to take the time to read this whole chapter, Jeremiah really reveals his feelings. We read a moment ago in verse 4, he felt broken. He felt like his bones had been broken. They weren't literally broken, but the pain, the suffering, the agony was so intense that he felt broken. Verse 9, he was cut off from God. The word was barred. He was blocked from God. He goes on to say in verse 15, he's bitter. He's feeling bitter toward God. He feels rejected. He can't find, verse 17, anything good on the horizon. There's no prosperity to be found. And he continues to write. And yet all of a sudden, he looks up. He takes his focus off of the rubble, away from the debris. He lifts his eyes from his circumstance, and he realizes that his king has not moved. His king has not changed. God is faithful. When Jeremiah lifts his eyes from the rubble of the city, and he fixes them, on the faithfulness of his king, everything changes for Jeremiah. That's when he finds hope. I say that because it is very possible for well-meaning, well-informed, intelligent, successful people in this church to live their lives like this. You never take your eyes off your family. You never take your eyes off your health. You never take your eyes off your resources, your success, your productivity, your money, You never take your eyes off your immediate circumstance. Jeremiah hit rock bottom. He has nowhere to go but up. Every morning as he's confronted with the devastation around him, finally he lifts his eyes and focuses instead on the faithfulness of his father. And that's when everything changes. Look at verse 21. Uh, Lamentations 3, verse 21. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. I've grabbed this from the back of my brain, and I've brought it right to the forefront of my thinking. I learned this in church a long time ago, and now I'm going to focus on it. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Now, remember, (laughs) Jeremiah is grieving here. Just because he changed his his focus doesn't mean the rubble disappeared. Doesn't mean anything around him changed. He says, I'm even a little bitter, but I know what to do. I'm going to focus on the faithfulness of the Father. 
Now, I don't know if you've ever felt bitter toward God, but I have. I have felt bitter toward God. God, why won't you do something? God, what's taking so long? Or, God, I appreciate your movement here, but good grief, I could have done that. I was expecting something much bigger. Have you ever felt this way? That's the way Jeremiah feels. But it's in the midst of that kind of turmoil and that kind of emotion that he remembers what's most important, that God is faithful. Therefore, I call this to my mind, and that brings me hope. Verse 22, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. The word is hesed, H-E-S-E-D. It is because of the Lord's mercy, his loving kindness, his unfailing love, his loyal commitment. It is because of his great love that we are not consumed. Great is your faithfulness. This kind of loyal love is, is like the love of a mother for her child. I mean, there's something supernatural about that. You brought that baby into this world, and you're not going to let him go. This is the kind of love that God has for us. His compassion never fails. His forgiveness never fails. His mercy never takes a day off. Why? Because God is faithful. He is immovable. He's steadfast in his loyalty and his affection for each of us. See, God keeps loving us, and God kept loving them, just like the prodigal is loved by the father. God keeps loving his prodigal children. The story of the Old Testament is one where Israel departs and God saves them once again. They depart, God saves them once again. I have a wonderful job and I'm very thankful for my job, but the worst part about it, hands down, I am certain, is watching people and their unfaithfulness. When they come to this church, it's because perhaps they're at the bottom. Their marriage has gone up in flames. Something big has gotten their attention. It's opened their eyes and they've decided to give church a try. So we start discipling them. We introduce them to Christ first. We get them in a small group, maybe. I'll go to their home on a Tuesday night and counsel with their family. We do everything we can to get them on track. And man, they get on track. And for the first six months, it's the greatest church they've ever seen. It's the best place ever. I mean, there's something real about this place. There's something authentic about this place. But then one small compromise built upon another small compromise and another small compromise. Before you know it, they've left again. They're gone again. Something happens, changes, they see things differently, and they come right back. Let me tell you something. As a pastor and someone who hopes to encourage people with the love and the faithfulness of Jesus and God the Father, I have my limits. You leave and come back three or four times, I am deleting you from my contacts list. I've had enough. I, I, I'm not going to play that game. But not God. Never God. He is immovable. He does not change. His compassion is new every morning. Remember the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15? Jesus told the story of the prodigal son to illustrate to Israel their own unfaithfulness in contrast to the father's faithfulness. Remember this, this young, kind of cocky, arrogant son goes to his father and demands, 
my inheritance. Give me my portion. I want what's coming to me. And the father lets him go just like our father lets us go. He didn't force him to stay. The son takes what he has and he goes off and blows everything wildly until he's broke. He's penniless. He has nothing but shame and remorse. And it dawns on him, my father's servants have it better than I have. I'll return to my father's house and maybe I can convince him to treat me as one of the hired ranch hands. But that's not how the father received him, was it? While he was yet a long way off, the Bible says, his father's heart filled with joy. And he greeted his prodigal son with love and warmth and hugs and kisses. He restored that relationship. And then he threw a big party. Jesus told that story in Luke 15 to remind Israel of how unfaithful they had been throughout their history and yet how immovable, how faithful God had been. Look at verse 23. They are new every morning. What are? His compassions, verse 22. His great love, they never fail. They're made brand spanking new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Every day, church, there's a fresh supply of God's loyal love, his compassion, every day. God did not abandon his people in their most difficult time. It's the exact opposite. More love every morning, more compassion made new every morning. You say, but, well, yeah, but you don't know how many times I've been down this road, Mike. You don't know what I've done. I mean, I have blown it. This promise is for us when we've blown it. This promise is for us when we feel shame and remorse. This pro promise is tailor-made to meet us at our need. You see, even when I make stupid choices, ridiculous decisions, short-sighted, rash, circumstance-driven, his faithfulness never diminishes, not one bit. He's faithful. His loyal love, his compassion, they're brand new every morning, according to Jeremiah. Here's the way I look, like to look at it. Every day, every morning when the sun comes up, even if I can't see the sun because it's cloudy or it's foggy or it's raining, still the dawn of light is a reminder that God is here. Today is a brand spanking new day. Everything is possible today. Yesterday is gone. I can begin again today. It's as if God says, Mike, I'm here today. Don't worry about tomorrow. We'll get through tomorrow together, but I'm here today. Let me introduce you to something that ought to become important to you. Jeremiah is teaching it right here in Lamentations 3. It's called portioned compassion. Portioned compassion. Jeremiah says that every day God delivers a fresh supply of his loyal love and his compassion. It's brand new. It's Hesed, H-E-S-E-D. Now, it's not a promise for 2023 or 2024. It's not a promise for 20 years from now when you're thinking about retirement. It's not a, problem, a promise for your children and their children. It's a promise for you today. You see, contrary to a popular understanding that's very pervasive some bad theology out there when you turn the television on sometimes. Following Jesus Christ is not about setting myself up for a good tomorrow. Following Jesus today is not about a promise that if I'll do this today, I'm guaranteed something good tomorrow. Not at all. In fact, often it's just the opposite. Following Jesus Christ is about walking in his portioned 
compassion today. That's what it's about. Taking every day as it comes. Why? Because those compassions and that mercy are unlimited for today. They're unlimited. I can wake up this morning and I can use them all up. And tomorrow morning there's a brand new, fresh, unlimited supply. You say, how do I do that? How do I live like that? How do I stop pulling tomorrow's clouds over today's sunshine? How do I do that? Look at verse 24. So I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Now, remember, he's not feeling that right now. I'm not feeling this, but I know better. I know that God is faithful. So he is my portion today. Therefore, I will wait for him. Jeremiah says that today is the day that I need God. He's my portion for today. I don't need to get wrapped up in tomorrow. He goes on in verse 25. The Lord is good to those who hope in him, to the one who seeks him. That should be the MO of every follower of Jesus Christ. Every day I hope in God and I seek after him. It's good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Now, don't misunderstand. This is not passive waiting. You're not sitting around doing nothing. Waiting quietly in verse 25 or 26 comes in the context of verse 25, hoping and seeking. So as I'm hoping, as I'm seeking, I'm waiting on a faithful father. Look, very quickly, and I'll quit. Let me offer you three ideas to carry with you and make God's faithfulness real. Number one, confess my sin and wait. If you're marching through the rubble of your life and you don't like what you see, maybe it's because little by little, compromise by compromise, you have piled on in sin. Own it. Confess it. Forsake it. Kill what's trying to kill you, and that's your sin. Number two, hope in God and seek Him. Be encouraged. God's love is loyal. He's steadfast. He's bound by His character to care for you. His love is real, so seek him. And number three, exhaust his grace today. Today there's an unlimited supply of his mercy, of his grace, of his compassion, of his loving kindness. So walk in it. Live it out. Experience it. When you wake up tomorrow, there's a brand new, untouched, unlimited supply of the same. Look, the whole message boils down to this one statement. Church, you can trust God. You can trust him. He's faithful. He has not changed. I know it's difficult as a young person to date or to do relationship and love the way God says do it. And you may be tempted to just give it up. Don't do it because God can be trusted. His way is always best. I know it's ridiculous to some of you to think that you'd carve off some sort of prioritized percentage of my income and give it to the church, God's work. Are you kidding me? Do it. God's faithful. He can be trusted. Trust him with your life. Trust him with your health. Trust him with your marriage. Trust him with your money and your income. God can be trusted. What a gift. He is faithful. What a gift. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, I realize there is no possible way that I could ever do justice in describing your faithfulness in a setting like this. 
It is so far beyond our comprehension. I just pray that today we've gotten just a little glimpse into the possibility of leaving this place and walking in your faithfulness. Teach us, Heavenly Father, to take our eyes off our immediate circumstances and focus them on the faithfulness of our Father, whereby we might have better ideas and more information and another way of looking at things. Dismiss us now with your blessing upon each of us. I pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Hope you make it a fantastic week. I will see you next time.